This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. In the past few weeks, Secretary Betsy DeVos has offered up a school choice idea Democrats should love. It provides $5 billion in tax credits to those who donate money for the education of low-income children, and then it leaves it up to the states to decide whether funds be restricted to supplements for public school education, the traditional public schools, or to be used for tuition to attend a private school or for some other educational purpose. Blue state legislators may, if they wish, restrict usage to services within the public school sector. Red states may, if they wish, allow low-income families to use the money for scholarships to help finance tuition at a private school. I have with me today Jim Blue, the Assistant Secretary for Planning, Evaluation, and Policy Development in the U.S. Department of Education, who has worked with Betsy DeVos in developing this legislation. Jim, it is a great pleasure to have you join me on the Education Exchange. Thanks, Paul. It's great to be here. Jim, many of our listeners are aware of tax credits, but not all of them. So let's begin. What exactly is a tax credit, and and how will this federal tax credit actually work on the ground? Right. Well, most tax credits um, are an offset of uh, your tax liability, meaning if you uh, invest in something like an electric car, you will get a credit um, against your taxes. Uh, the, the tax credit we're talking about is fundamentally different than that in that uh, you're not getting anything back for yourself. Um, it is a tax credit to encourage donations to scholarship programs um, as designed by states. Uh, and when you make a contribution to one of those, your tax liability will get shifted to the scholarship granting organization. Um, so there's no benefit to yourself. It's really a charitable act and it's a recognition uh, that you would get a one-for-one one credit for doing so that. So I can give a money to a scholarship foundation if a state legislature enacts that kind of a proposal. I can give my uh, $3,000 in charitable contributions to this organization. And then the good news is I can take a tax credit deduction of $3,000 against my federal taxes. Right. And the easy way of thinking of it is you have a tax liability and you're just directing it at a scholarship granting organization is what they're called under the law uh, instead of sending it off to the federal government. Well, is this something these billionaires can really take advantage of? They'll give a billion dollars to their favorite charity and then get a billion dollar tax credit or, or what's the limitation on this? So there are limitations for um, the one for one tax credit is available both to individuals and to businesses. There are different caps. For uh, individuals and married couples, it's 10% of adjusted gross income. So up to 10% of your adjusted gross income you could uh, send over to one of the scholarship granting organizations. Uh, For businesses, it's half that rate. They can contribute up to 5% of their net taxable income. But I do want to reemphasize something. They are Um, Neither of them are financially better off. Essentially what they're doing is redirecting their tax liability over to a scholarship granting organization. Well, tax credits have been pretty popular at the state level. A number of states have enacted them, and I think that number is increasing. Even Illinois enacted uh, a tax credit, and and Illinois is a blue state, not a red state. So 
Uh, it's got uh, broader support than uh, just uh, the partisan support. Yeah. As opposed to the old-fashioned vouchers where it was a direct appropriation. Yes, in the Education Next polling, we find more support for tax credits than for any other school choice program. So in many ways, this is a well-chosen uh, uh, alternative for the administration to, to support. But are these constitutional? I mean, there's been a lot of voucher programs have been found to be questionable from a constitutional point of view uh, in in state uh, courts. So is this going to survive the constitutional challenges? So the, the there are several benefits of using tax credits. One of them is that uh, it's funded entirely by voluntary donations uh, rather than um, an increase in taxes. So that's one of the reasons they're highly popular. Uh, once the program is completely voluntary, you also avoid the accusation that you're somehow depriving public schools or public school teachers from any revenue. Your legal question uh, is a good one. Uh, and in fact, there's a case that's gone all the way up to the Supreme Court, an Arizona case, uh, that um, validated the approach of using tax credit scholarships rather than direct appropriations to fund school choice programs. But the idea of um, vouchers and tax credits are sort of similar to vouchers. Um, people are beginning to raise questions as to whether actually uh, low-income families, uh, their children are actually learning more in, in private schools. Louisiana, there was just a study of the Louisiana voucher program and they found negative effects of going to a private school. Uh, what's the evidence that actually this could be beneficial for students yeah. to have that option? So the Louisiana study is an interesting one, and uh, before we start delving into that, it's important to note that there's been a lot of research around these scholarship programs, voucher programs, tax credit scholarships over the years, and overwhelmingly the results have been positive, that students who participate in those programs uh, do better than their peers who um, are not offered the same choices. Um, it's worth looking deeper at the Louisiana study that recently came out. Uh, the, um, there was a D.C. study where there were some negative effects, and these are outliers, uh, but they're worth looking at because uh, there are implications for program design. And for those of us in the movement, design matters. How you d develop these programs, create them, um, matters a lot. And so just uh, assuming that all of these programs are identical uh, is fallacious. Uh, so what's wrong with the design of the Louisiana there's program? A, there's a couple of things that we, we as a movement are trying to get our arms around. One is that uh, D.C. and Louisiana, or New Orleans in particular, um, have a great deal of charter school choice. Uh, and so there appears to be some interactions with the charter school sector that um, one of them is charter schools, although they are less funded than traditional public schools, they receive less per pupil, um, they receive more than the private school uh, scholarship amounts are. So it's quite possible that we need to goose up the amount of funding and maybe even equate it across the sectors so we're treating children of equal value regardless of which school they choose. Um, there are lots of questions, even from the researchers themselves, about whether they're measuring the right things. Your audience is probably familiar with the difference between a norm-referenced and a criterion-based uh, test. Um, 
Yeah, the, then see, the norm reference tests are those that are uh, designed to uh, test students' ability regardless of the particular uh, curriculum that they're studying, whereas the uh, aligned tests are specific to a particular uh, textbook or a set of uh, expectations for students. Exactly, and the Louisiana test that uh, they were compelled to use was a criterion reference test. And so the researchers themselves had questions about whether they're literally testing the wrong thing. We're testing what they're teaching in the traditional public school rather than what's being tested uh, in the uh, private schools that participate. And I think they actually found uh, a better graduation rate among the uh, students who went to the, uh, the voucher schools. Right, and that's another thing that we're seeing consistently across uh, the country in these programs. The attainment levels um, tend to be much higher uh, if, if you are uh, participating in these programs over a couple of years. So uh, it's a nice idea, uh, many people think, um, but the question is, is it a realistic idea? And wouldn't it have been more realistic to have proposed this when the Republican Party was in control of both houses of Congress than to introduce it now after the 2018 election? You got divided control on Capitol Hill. How can you ever get a major proposal that has been part of the national political debate uh, through the legislative labyrinth under these political circumstances? Right. The, the timing is dictated largely by the internal process where you need to get everyone in the administration on board with the same proposal. Uh, that took months of activity. Uh, our timing was to have it ready just after the midterm elections. And so uh, that is what it is. Um, let's be, let's take a step back though. Even uh, while the Republicans still co controlled the House, we would have been obliged to get a block of Democrats to join this proposal. Uh, and that's important for a lot of reasons. One uh, is that it ensures you get a majority vote, but it also ensures sustainability. Uh, we need to make sure that this program, once passed, isn't reversed. So you need bipartisan uh, buy-in. Uh, we always knew that. And uh, as you look at the proposal, and you commented yourself in your opening, it seems to be designed to be attractive to Democrats. Uh, we know that it won't be universally appealing to Democrats. There are several who are very dependent on the uh, labor union that represents the teachers for their political support. Uh, so they won't lift a finger to help us. Um, but other Democrats um, are able to be more open-minded about this. Uh, and it makes it easier on them that we're not insisting on vouchers or private school choice. We simply want students to have more opportunities. And if those are more opportunities in public schools, we're all for it. Well, one of the things that surprised me was that the Heritage Foundation, which has always been a staunch supporter of school choice, has expressed opposition to the proposal. Uh, they say the proposal interferes with state right, states' rights. Uh, what's your response to this criticism? What is the Heritage Foundation doing? Yeah, well, first of all, I want to point out that we've been longtime allies with the Heritage Foundation. We think they're wrong about this. Uh, I should also point out that most of the people who are involved in school choice, I can talk about the American Federation for Children, the Ed Choice Foundation, um, 
Americans for Prosperity, all of the other groups have come alongside this proposal, um, the Catholic Conference, et cetera, um, and said, like, this is the right way to go. Um, the concerns that the Heritage Foundation have are, are, are worth listening to. Uh, one is that uh, they are very concerned that there could be a political change and that the people in charge in the future, and they personalize it, they mentioned Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, uh, they would do things to private schools that would be abominable. And um, I've, you know, I've tried to speak to them directly about it. They've dug in quite, quite heavily at this point. Um, but there are several things that, you know, they, uh, we wish they would take a look at. One is the, the real threat here isn't from federal regulation. Uh, the, the real battle around holding schools accountable and what types of regulations will be used, um, that's going to happen at the state level. And so we really wish they would turn their attention away from the federal potential fear-mongering around regulations uh, to the reality of when states adopt these programs, what do they look like? Because right now, states already have a fairly heavy foot in, the, in private school regulation. The other thing we'd like them to recognize, um, you know, Betsy DeVos and Ted Cruz, the sponsor in the Senate, are renowned for their opposition to federal control of education. And so they've built a lot of safeguards into this to make sure that there won't be a federal role uh, beyond having a tax credit, minimal accountability such as uh, 90% of the funds have to be spent on scholarships. The balance can be used for administrative costs, research, coming alongside parents. That's what we see other uh, SGOs do now. And so uh, it is a frustrating position they're taking, but we have to say, like, the rest of the community disagrees with them, and they're moving forward uh, with this bill and hopeful that someday they'll come along. Well, the other side of the argument is, is that uh, $5 billion sounds like a lot of money, but we are talking about an $800 billion educational system, and uh, $5 billion looks like a drop in the bucket when you're thinking about the whole... A uh, picture out there. So, how can such a tiny little innovation leverage such a very large system? That is the power of choice. Uh, yes, it is a small fraction of the amount of money we spend, uh, but it has enormous power and benefits. We've watched this in the charter school movement, we've watched it in the places where private school choice scholarships have existed, K 12 scholarships. I would argue that the $5 billion in tax credits, which will encourage donations for scholarship organizations, might be more effective than an additional $5 billion in federal spending on programs, some of which we already have lots of evidence don't work very well. Well, so th th this idea is uh, fascinating. Whether or not it will get enacted into law remains a very much of a, an open question, but some things that the Secretary has been doing have definitely had an impact. And perhaps the most important single thing that she has done thus far is to withdraw many of the rules and memoranda and regulations that were promulgated by the Obama administration in the closing years of that administration. And a lot of these had to do with civil rights questions and sexual 
uh, harassment, racial discrimination. Uh, and so, you know, uh, the charge out there is that the Trump administration is against civil rights. Uh, how do you respond to that criticism? Right. There is, there's going to be an argument from political opposition that the different approach that we're taking toward guaranteeing civil rights, um, trying to erase sexual assault and sexual violence, uh, those that our approach is so different than the prior administration and actually the prior few administrations. So many of the rules and regulations that we have um, reconsidered, some of which we've rescinded and reissued, uh, those are uh, just different approaches, trying to get to the same thing. Um, I think we could probably most productively talk about Title IX, uh, the sexual assault uh, regs. Uh, first of all, you have to understand that the prior administration did not issue regulations. They just issued a Dear Colleague letter that uh, many colleges uh, across the country assumed was law. Uh, they did not go through the notice and comment period that is required for true regulations. So the first thing that the secretary did was to say, well, we're not just going to issue a new, a new dear colleague letter. We're going to do the hard work of submitting our proposed changes to the public for comment, litigating that, and then generating a rule. It's a lot uh, longer process, and it requires a lot more uh, resources. While I'm not allowed to talk about the rule itself or the internal uh, proceedings, uh, I can tell you that people who saw the rule when it was uh, the draft rule when it was submitted were surprised at how even-handed it was and that it was trying to erase sexual assault in this country in a productive way that, though different than the Obama administration's Dear Colleague letter, we think will have a lasting impact. And so when uh, the final rule is issued, we'll be judged on that. But right now, we're feeling pretty good about where we've come. Well, finally, I want to ask you about free college tuition. Mm -hmm. uh, the college debt is escalating out there. Uh, there's a lot of demand that that college debt be forgiven, and, but you have a lot of new students coming down the pike. Uh, we want to encourage more uh, young people to get a better education. Why doesn't this administration embrace free college tuition, college for all? Yeah. Well, first of all, we do believe in higher education for all. We do think that we're, we need higher education, post-secondary education, for almost anyone who is coming through the system right now. Um, our world is changing, and it's very difficult to get by just with a high school degree. Uh, you'll need additional training. Um, we think that it's an appropriate federal role to support that. Now, we have to think through um, how taxpayers invest in that. There was a consensus that post-secondary degrees were beneficial to the economy, and so it made sense for the taxpayers to come forward loan people money so that they could become more productive economically and then pay back the taxpayers. Uh, the current system is creating about $100 billion a year of new debt 
for people taking advantage of the federal program. And the taxpayers didn't sign up to just simply give that away and never get repaid back. So we have to find a way. It's also not fair to the students who have either did not absorb any debt, which is about half the students, or those students who have been paying back their loans. It's simply not fair. I should also point out, it's very regressive. The people who would have their loans forgiven are actually the more affluent families in this country. And so it is not a benefit to the low-income families that the federal law was originally designed to help. So all that to say, it's a very tricky problem. We are, we are looking for solutions that would encourage the institutions that give these loans uh, to absorb part of the risk so that they're not just giving out money willy-nilly. Uh, we're also looking for vehicles that would allow uh, those institutions to limit the amount of borrowing that goes on. Under current law, a student can come in and simply say, I want tens of thousands of dollars of loans, and this institution isn't in a position to counsel them, even if uh, they're going into a field where they know they probably won't make the money to pay back the loans. So those are the kinds of steps we're talking about. I think all of those are productive. They weigh both the interests of the taxpayers, the students, and our future economy because we need to continue investing in post-secondary. Well, thank you, Jim, for sharing the thoughts of the administration on in these incredibly important uh, educational policy issues. Uh, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you. It's great to be here. I have been speaking with Jim Blue, Assistant Secretary for Planning, Evaluation, and Policy Development in the U.S. Department of Education. Thank you all for joining me today on the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the EducationX website every Monday at noon Eastern Time.